If it's comfortable for you and you're happy to do it, kneel with me for prayer, and if not, just stay where you are, and I'll pray in a moment. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would make your word easy for us to understand this evening. That by your spirit, you would bring out things that are most important for those who are here, for those who may listen later. I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. So tonight we're talking about particularly how to use the Bible in a pattern school on the primary level or the elementary level. Uh, Certainly as a church, we ought to have more primary schools than any other schools in the world. In my own church plant, when I say my own church plant, I mean I certainly have taken ownership of this thing. About 11 years ago, my wife and I and four students set to work in a town of 10,000 people, and we thought zero Seventh-day Adventist. Turned out there was one, but we would have been better off without him. But uh, uh, he was unfaithful to his non-Adventist wife. So that, that didn't get us off to a good start or anything. But we began our church plant in that town, and... Uh, That church grew slowly. I'd love to teach you about church planting, but I'm not going to do that. Until seven years ago, we started an elementary school. Because of what Ellen White said, if you have, you know, just a handful of students, you ought to have a school. Well, our church didn't have the resources for a school. But God helped us. When we purchased our church, the church came with a parsonage. And the parsonage was 3,000 square feet of well-abused building. (laughs) And we fixed up part of it to be our little school. So our school didn't need to buy its own building. Isn't that a blessing? Anyway, you could ask about that school later, but that school is operating with its own 501c3. You know what that allows? That allows us to pay our teacher what we can afford instead of what would be otherwise uh, required by our division policies. Because if our little church had to pay a regular salary, we would not be able to have a school. We don't have those kind of resources as a baby church. But anyway, we are finding young teachers who can work for a pittance, and they're doing a good job for a pittance. And uh, so what I'm going to do tonight... I'm going to tell you a story, but I don't see most of the children here, and there might be more coming. So maybe I'll tell you an adult story and then later tell you a children's story because this children's story is more for the children. Once, but this is the adult story. Once upon a time in a land far, far away lived I. You're back. I saw you leave just a half hour ago. I hope you enjoyed your supper. I was a little boy living in Alaska. Alaska has no extra volume of women because women, frankly, don't like to be cold. It's not all, but it's a pretty general thing. And uh, so for that and other reasons, Alaska is low on feminine persons. There are other reasons. One reason is there's more creepy guys there than average. So, so for, for whatever reason, um, that's where I grew up. My mother had an idea that if she went to Alaska, maybe she could teach at an Adventist church school. 
because her husband, my father, was a smoker. And everywhere else she applied, the fact that her husband was a smoker kept her from getting a job in the, a denominational church school. But her thought was, up there they might be desperate, and maybe they would hire her despite my dad's issue. Well, my parents weren't about to split up, so my dad, knowing what she was thinking, sent resumes up there, and even though my mom didn't get a job, he did. And he got such a good one that we went up there even though my mom didn't have a job. So that's how I grew up in Alaska. Uh, my mother was on the downgrade, and I hope none of you can relate, but I bet some of you can. She had, at some point in her life, when, before she, when she just left college, she was mission-minded. Her goal was, in fact, to go to the Middle East. She had been accepted as a missionary to Beirut, and this is where, this is where she was pushing her mind. But the man that she set her mind on marrying didn't take an interest in her. And the way she found out was very wounding to her. And it discouraged her, the way that some people who really set their mind on something can be wounded and discouraged. So when my mother met my father, she didn't do enough critical thinking. And she agreed to marry him if he would quit smoking. I think you have enough experience in life to know that that's probably not a good bargain to make. Would any of you witness to the children here that that's not a good bargain? Uh, I'll witness it that uh, what, if you're, what if the guy who makes the bargain isn't quite capable of following through, for example? And that was my dad. He died from his cigarette smoking after they'd been married for about 30 years. And... Uh, so I grew up in a home where my mother, by, by violating principles that were important to her, this must be yours. I knew your mom when she was a, just a little older than you are, and she was really a nice person. She was. I did. Say? Still is? As far as I know. I don't know her anymore, but, uh, but I, I'm not surprised, all right? Uh, my mother for example, had an idea that she wouldn't have a television in the house. But over my growing up years, it really hurt her that I would spend time at the neighbors' houses because they had a television. And I didn't like to be home because there, there wasn't one. And uh, she eventually decided to bring one in to our house. And then I bought my own. And it was, uh, I'll just summarize the story and make it short enough to say that I was headed down the path where most people were headed also where I was. And that's when a man was converted to the Adventist church there in Alaska named Les Graham. Welcome. Come in. Hi. And uh, Les was a typical what would you say, hippie? Would that be the right word? Uh, he had lawn hair, and it was a mixture of black and gray, and he played the guitar, which was the primary qualifications necessary to be a youth leader in Alaska. <laughs> and uh, so as soon as Lass was baptized, they made him the youth leader in our little church in North Pole, Alaska. North Pole, Alaska is in the center. It's not like way up in the North Pole. It's just the name of a town. And I want to praise God for my youth leader, Les Graham. 
Les is the first person I ever recall meeting that talked about Bible promises as if they had power. Amen. He's the first person I ever recall encountering who talked about religion in a way that made it seem supernatural. Where previous to that in my life, religion has stories about the supernatural, but the day-to-day experience of it isn't supernatural. It's just, it's just the ritual. Ritual might be the wrong word because it's not symbolic to go to church, but there's nothing miracle-like to it. Less opened my eyes to this idea about a God who was involved very personally in his life, and it made me begin to think as an 11-year-old that maybe God would like to be involved in my life. And then Les really put himself on a limb. I don't know if I even recommend this limb, but I do. But not the exact same limb, but a limb like it on your tree. Uh, Les was a single man, and he wanted a wife. And he was in his 40s. And in our church, there were only two single females. They were ages 17 and 19. They were in his Sabbath school class, and they thought he was weird. (laughs) Therefore, the chance of him locating a spouse in our church was low. Does anyone follow what I'm saying? And uh, he found a promise. Why don't you turn just to see it for yourself. Isaiah 34, verse 16. Isaiah 34, verse 16 Isaiah 34, 16, it says, seek. That's the first word there. It's, it's about Bible study, it looks like. Seek ye out of what book? The, the, the book of the Lord, right? Seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read. No one of these shall fail. That must be like its statements or its promises. None shall want her mate. Want there would be need, like in the 23rd Psalm, Right? For my mouth it has commanded, and my spirit it has gathered them together. Now, if you read the context, you'll see it's about birds. But Les Graham reasoned like this, that if God takes care of sparrows, if he cares for them, he certainly will care for me. He got that idea from the Lord Jesus. Didn't Jesus say something like that? And uh, are you not much better than many sparrows, this idea? So Les claimed that promise that God was going to provide him a wife. And he talked as if the promise would not fail, as if God would certainly do it. That was almost spooky. I mean, it was not possible. It'd be like claiming it's going to rain, right, when you, before the flood. And I, as an 11-year-old, could just watch I really have to speed this story up because this could take a whole hour and I have a lot I want to share tonight. But uh, there was a very spiritual lady that lived about 30 miles from my house that went to another church in Fairbanks, Alaska. She had been my babysitter when I was really small. Her name was Ruby, Ruby Dasher. Her husband was a gold miner by trade and uh, he made a decent living. But he was in an ultralight aircraft just after this promise claiming from Isaiah 34 and something went wrong and he crashed to his death 
leaving the only spiritual woman I ever knew growing up as a widow at about the age of 40. No kidding. It was just a short time later that Ruby was at our church in North Pole sitting beside Les Graham. (laughs) It was amazing. And it was supernatural. And they did get married. And they formed a ministry together that they did until one of them died. And uh, to make the story... I'm going to just cut the story there, but someday I'd like to tell you sometime, but I won't never have time to do it. But that's where my spiritual life began. That's where I began to read the Bible for myself, to study for myself, to memorize scripture for myself. And if there's anything I want to tell you tonight about primary education, it's that it is the right time to reach children. It is the right time. I think for me to become a for real Christian Two or three years before my hormones kicked in saved me a world of difficulty. Can you imagine how, what a difference that makes to learn principles about self-denial and self-discipline and resisting temptation before those hormones begin to just kick you and push you? It's just a great thing to be converted at age 11. It's super. And... Uh, I hope in elementary education, those of you who are homeschooling, and I hope that you are aiming, I'm sure you are, I don't need to like hope that or you wouldn't be homeschooling, but I just wish to heaven that every elementary school had a less Graham. I wish that everywhere there was someone who, when they talked about the Bible, talked about its promises as if they had power. That when they talked about Bible promises having power, they didn't talk about it in a theoretical way, but as if in a personal way, in their own battles in life, that they were using the Bible to get victory over weaknesses and to get help and wisdom when they needed guidance. People who would model by the way they relate to the Bible as if the Bible really is the solution to a lot of problems. I'm afraid that many young people don't have an experience like that. They never meet a Les Graham. And so, like me, they go to church as basically decent kids, but they're on the downgrade, and at some point, they hit a really steep slope. And um, so that was the adult story, with a little bit of of, uh, moralizing at the end of it. What I want to do next is tell you about some resources, and I forgot to put our little marker board up, but it's not too late to do it. Uh, I think many of you already know about this wonderful magazine, Young Disciple Magazine. How many of you use that at some point in your life or your young people do it? So it's a a good chunk of you. Uh, Maybe in my mind, this is kind of ideal for 12 to 16 maybe even 12 to 18, but I'm 43, and I like it. And uh, it's the only publication I read pretty consistently at church, is the Young Disciple magazine my nephews and niece get out of their Sabbath school class. Uh, I highly recommend Young Disciple magazine. And then, when they get a little older... 
I recommend something less known called upstream. Upstream, that's produced by the same organization that produces my Bible, that's a B, believe it or not, my Bible first. Upstream is aiming for the ages, I would say, 16 to 25. And I think the upstream materials might even make for some of you a decent homeschooling Bible curriculum because they are going through serious issues, everything from the book of Revelation to homosexuality to divorce of parents to choosing friends to why delay dating to 313 different Bible studies. You know when people join our church, they, they study like about 30 of them. And, uh, but these are 313 studies that really touch about every issue you could wish that a young person would study from the Bible. Bible, Bible studies. We're talking about the Bible in elementary or primary education, and I think you have something. Uh, though it's aimed for Sabbath school at ages like 17 and up, school is a little more rigorous than Sabbath school. Does anyone follow what I'm just saying? And those same lessons that are for 17 and up for Sabbath school, I use them with my 13-year-old niece and her 15-year-old brother. I use them almost weekly, just reading it to them. I, like, bounce things off them, in fact, that way. But I think if it was in primary school, I would use those as a curricula or part of the, part of the curriculum. Uh, they would be, a, anyway, you know, the resource. Something else you ought to consider if you want Bible to be used if you want to get your young people involved in Bible exposure, is truth for youth. Now, we have right here in our midst two preachers. Is it just two? I know I saw them walk in, so I know they're here somewhere. Where are you? There's you. Did your brother hear? Maybe he didn't come. There he is. Okay, they're both in here. So we have here two preachers who have preached through Truth for Youth. Well, what is it? It's an evangelistic series for young people to use. I have a niece, Hannah, who I stretch the word niece the way they do in Africa. But uh, I have a niece, Hannah, who's 13. She's not 13 now. She's maybe 19. But she was 13 when she used Truth for Youth. Her little church in Illinois was going to have an evangelistic series. They advertised widely, and I think they got maybe five or six adults attending their little church meeting. Well, the 13-year-old daughter held a Truth for Youth series for the young people. I think they had one or two young people attending pretty regularly nightly. Do you know half of the baptisms came from the Truth for Youth and uh, that young, to, to be 13 when you have your first convert, does something for you. It, it really begins to change the way you kind of think or aim or what's important or, you know, your values. I just recommend that maybe you know by experience there is no way to learn the Bible like teaching it. And um, so those are resources. Something else you ought to know about getting 
using Bible on the elementary level in your primary program is memory work is more powerful than you think. Uh, if in India we use too much rote memory, here in the United States we use too little. Or to say it otherwise, we kind of get to it too late. Like we start our serious rote memory when we take A and P, right? And that's a bit late. It's kind of rusty already, and it's, a lot of people struggle at that point. Uh, but ages 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 is when the mind is very capable of massive rote memory. I'm holding this up. You're wondering, what in the world is he holding up? This is the book of Hebrews in acronym. So the front of the card right there, that's Hebrews 11, 1 to 12. The back of the card is the first letter of each word, Hebrews 1 to 12. And my project this year, I'm memorizing the book of Hebrews. That's what I'm doing. And so I'm, it's about halfway through the year. I've memorized all the chapters. And now I'm trying to, what's much, diff, much more difficult than that is trying to have them all memorized at the same time. Can anyone relate to what I'm talking about here? Try, here, try large memory. Okay. So I have the rest of the year to work on that so that I can just recite the book of Hebrews. I find myself using Hebrews much more this year than I ever have in my sermons. Can you imagine why? When I was 11, Les Graham taught me the value of memory work, and he suggested, he and Ruby suggested I start memorizing the Bible. So I went to my mother, and I asked her, she was cooking, I remember doing this, I remember the experience. I asked her if she knew a verse I ought to learn. And she said, Acts 111, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing? You, you know this, right? So I went and I memorized it. I think it probably took me like 20 minutes or so. And I came back and said it to her and asked her for another verse. And I think the thought occurred to her that this could really begin to, to disrupt her routine. If I would come every 20 minutes and she'd have to start thinking of a verse... Can you, can you imagine as a mother, if you had to think of a new verse three times an hour, several hours a day? So the next thing she said was, Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's about 100 verses. It's about a third the size of the book of Hebrews. And uh, it did. It took a couple months. But nothing has been better for my Bible comprehension and Bible study than my 11 and 12-year-old experience in memorizing the Bible. I found that memorizing Scripture was like giving a toolbox to the Holy Spirit to use in guiding and teaching me. That the Spirit, I could be reading one passage and the Spirit can bring to my mind that other thing. I could begin to see connections I never saw before. Already, now that I'm learning the book of Hebrews, I see in the book of Psalms so many things I never noticed. Hebrews quotes Psalms repeatedly. There's a lot of Old Testament in the book of Hebrews that I didn't even know about. Uh, I'm just trying to preach at you a simple idea that your curriculum ought to involve memory work. I told you about that niece, Hannah. She has a sister, Leah, who went to school here. Did any of you ever get to know Leah Crosby? She took the SALT program. Not one of you got to know my precious niece, Leah. When Leah was about nine years old, her parents had her doing memory work. And I was so impressed. And at that point, I drove really old, rickety cars. 
I still drive somewhat rickety cars and not anything new. But uh, I told Leah, if by your 18th birthday you would learn, you'll memorize 1,000 verses, I will get you a car equal in value to the kind I drive. That's what I told her. I did not know that she would take me seriously. She did. And before her 18th birthday, Leah had learned 1,000 verses of Scripture. And she didn't want a car like the kind I drive. So I just wrote her a check for 3000 that she could apply to the kind of car she wanted. And uh, I'm glad that she did that. And what I'm trying to express to you just by these silly illustrations, they're not silly, but real illustrations, is the idea that if we get our young people memorizing Scripture, what's going to increase is going to be their comprehension of Scripture. And when their comprehension increases, their interest level will go up. And when their interest level goes up, it just does wonders for them. Uh, There's something more. When you're uh, memorizing Scripture, hopefully they'll get some guidance on what to memorize the way I did. But I would give a little different guidance than my mom did. You might start with a whole collection of Bible promises. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, and look at verse 4. 2 Peter 1, verse 4. I was with a group of young people last week, about 70 of them that memorized this verse, and the verse before it, and the five verses after it. 2 Peter 1, 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious, what? Promises. Now, when it says whereby, that's referring to verse 3. And you might see there in verse 3, it's by a knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue. Or verse 2, by the knowledge of Jesus. That's how we get everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. But in verse 4, by that knowledge of Jesus, that's how we get those exceeding great and precious promises that by these we might be partakers of the what nature? That's the miracle part, right? That's the supernatural element. We partake of the divine nature, and then we escape. Having escaped the corruption, what is corruption? Corruption is the process of getting worse. It's degeneration. It's rotting. It's, it's a downhill slope. What the end of verse 4 says is that that corruption is, that is in the world is there by lust. You see that in the end of verse 4? The corruption is in the world through lust. Let's say that backwards. The world is getting worse and worse because it's serving its appetites, its passions, its desires. And that we can escape that downhill slope. But how do we do it? By the precious promises. That's how. Claiming promises made a super difference in my life. Do you know that as a young man, God taught me things in the Bible that I didn't even know were in the Bible until years after I learned them? I'm thinking right now about the idea, make no provision for the flesh. I didn't know it was in the book of Romans. But God taught it to me. I doubt not that he was using the things that were available and helped put those ideas together to create a conclusion that would help me in dealing with my young temptations to sin. So the way you get these, like if you were wanting something like this, the way you get them... Young Disciple Ministry will produce these for you. 
at a very inexpensive cost. And uh, in fact, the way I got these ones is I just told one of the workers there, one of the founders, that I was memorizing the book of Hebrews, and he just volunteered to send it to me. That's it. They just sent them to me. And it's been invaluable, which is one of the strangest words ever because it means very valuable, not unvaluable. <laughs> and it, does that ever bother any of you growing up, that word? It's, it's, uh, but you have a question or a comment. Um, have you heard of a scripture typer? I have, yeah. Is it an app or a program or for a laptop? Yeah, I have by some students of mine in Australia who say it's really helped them. Very good. So Scripture Typer, and then Fountain View Academy has an app that has Scripture songs. And uh, just, I suppose I know about 20 chapters in the Bible in music that I've learned uh, without trying to memorize them, just by singing them, yes. Would that be easier for old people? It probably would be easier. It's, hard, it's easier for everybody. Music is easier than straight memory work. But what our sister is saying here, which is important, is that memory work uses part of your brain that can be a lot like those muscles that you never use in your body. You know, there are some, some exercises, if you start doing them, you'll just find muscles you never knew you had, and they'll hurt so badly. That's the brain when it comes to memory work for poor Americans, because we just don't do enough. If you get your kids working on this when they're 11 and 12, 10 and 9, they will not have the dead weight in their memory issues that we have when we're trying to memorize later. Uh, this, for me, uh, if I had done this at age 18, it would have been three times as easy as it is now. I remember Where did you say it was from? Uh, this organization, Young Disciple uh, Ministries, uh, they produce them. And if you ever wonder, they advertise all the way around so you'll never forget it. If you ever see one, you know, they got it right there. And on the back, they put their phone number and address and web page. If you want to see it afterwards, you can get their phone number. Uh, I'm sure you can find your own Bible memory devices. Uh, FAST is an organization that helps with Bible memory. I'm not trying to tell you so much how to memorize as to say, don't skip it. Majorly include it. If you're wondering how to make Bible interesting, there's nothing that makes the Bible more interesting than when it becomes familiar, and nothing that makes it less interesting than when it's not familiar. That is, poor people, when they try to read part of the Bible that uses all kinds of names. I'm thinking right now of a really beautiful passage in uh, the book of Micah. Why don't you look at it? I'll, I'll just, I want to give you a feel for how it is for our young people. Look at Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, we're going to look at verse 5. And after this, I'll tell, another, I'll tell a children's story, okay, after this. Micah 6, verse 5. O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab consulted, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Do you know, it's a beautiful verse, but if you don't know about Shittim and Gilgal and Beor and Balak and Moab and Balaam, 
some of you, when you first read this verse, which probably was like when you were 14 years old, your brain went right into neutral. You didn't get a single thing out of it. You didn't even try. You just felt lost, and you turned up to Matthew to find something you could understand. Isn't that what happens when you come to all those names and places you're not familiar with? Well, that happens to our young people a lot. And when we have a rigorous Bible program that makes sure they learn the stories and that they're memorizing Scripture, suddenly when they come to this verse, they remember the story of Balaam and Balak. And then if they go back and read it, or if you help them go back and read it, and they see the amazing thing that Balaam said, the shout of a king is among them. Was there a king in Israel at that time? Not a, not a human one. And what, what God said through Balaam is, I have not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Now, what does this verse say? It says, go back and pay attention to what Balaam said if you want to understand what? The righteousness of God, the righteousness of the Lord, Christ's righteousness. Uh, there's the story, a story that shows how, how God looks at his erring church full of people that have serious defects when they are not as a body harboring some wrong thing. It's just because it's not like there are a, a, a whole million people of perfect people when Balaam said that. If they had been really perfect characters, they wouldn't have fallen for Baal Peor just a couple chapters later. If you want to understand the righteousness of Christ, Micah 6 refers you back to that story. And what am I trying to prove to you? I'm not trying to teach you about Christ and his righteousness, but to teach you about how the Bible becomes interesting or boring. It has a lot to do with a rigorous education that makes the stories familiar and memory work that helps make the ideas familiar so the Spirit can put things together. That was the salvation of the thief on the cross, the one that made it because the Spirit was able to piece things together that he had heard in the past in such a way that he could see and understand who Jesus was. And uh, you don't know what's going to happen to the young people, but you want to be sure that, the, that what the Spirit needs is in there. So the Spirit can do what the Spirit needs to do when the Spirit needs to do it, when there isn't time to do it some other way. Do you follow what I'm trying to say? The children's story. Likaviki uh, lived near a mission in Southeast Asia. I recommend all of you go live near a mission in Southeast Asia. But Likaviki was Asian, and so he was at home. And uh, when he became a Christian at the mission, they taught him so many things. And one thing they taught Likaviki was about tithe. Now, I think you all know how tithe works. If you get a dime, how much do you give tithe? A penny. If you get a quarter, how much tithe do you give? Probably three cents, because we don't have half cents. We used to have half cents. You can look back in the 1600s, uh, excuse me, in the 1800s even, we had a half pence. But uh, we don't have them anymore. So we'd have to give three cents, right? Because we can't cut a penny in half. Likaviki believed in paying tithe. And uh, when he was reading the book of Malachi, he found the most amazing thing about tithe. It said, the Lord will rebuke the devourer. Devourer. What's a devourer? That's something that eats up your garden. Now, a lot of you young people are involved in gardens, aren't you? Are there devourers in our gardens? What are the things that eat up our gardens? 
deer, raccoons, rats, woodchucks, birds, and insects, and insects, and insects, and insects, right? <laughs> Isn't that what eats up our, our gardens? Likaviki found a promise that God would rebuke the devourer. Now, in his island, what ate up the garden was pigs. Wild pigs would come and eat produce. They lived near the mountains, and in the evening time, when everyone was sleeping, they'd come to the village and find the gardens and root up and just enjoy themselves gorging in whatever they could find. And Likaviki uh, was very upset one day to find that the pigs had got into the school garden and destroyed many of the plants. So he asked for permission to address his fellow students, and he got up in front of them and said, someone here isn't paying tithe. I don't know who it is, but someone isn't, because God promised that he would rebuke the devourer. So he warned them all, whoever you are, you should pay your tithe. And then he went on with his school life, but a couple weeks later, the pigs broke into the garden, and they'd made a better fence that time. The teacher said after that, we're going to have to make a very stout fence. But Likaviki asked if he could address all the students. And he said to the equivalent, I've had enough. And he called up four of his friends and said, we are going to make our own garden and the devourer will not bother our garden. And we're going to build it at the base of the mountain. Now, everyone knew that's where the pigs hung out. That's where they stayed. And the teacher said to Likaviki, aren't you going to put a big fence around your garden? And Likaviki said, no. Now, some of you adults are thinking this story might be extreme, but it's just a story. But it's true, and it happened. And God does reward faith very, very miraculously. And it came later that season, when it was time to start harvesting, that Likaviki and his friends were bringing back the largest melons and the largest fruit and the best-looking vegetables. And the teacher was amazed, and he wanted to go see the garden. And so he followed the boys out, and when they went out there, he began to see, because the, the path they took to the, to the hill was the same path the pigs took to the village. You know, why not? Uh, it's there. And when they got out to the garden, the teacher said, look, the pigs. And you could see the hoof prints right by the garden. The teacher said, you'd better build a fence. But Likaviki said, teacher, that's as close as they dare come. And that's how it was. God protected Likaviki's garden because Likaviki claimed a promise. Now, I should add, just to make all the adults happy, that I pay tithe and still some things devour my garden. <laughs> so I have some other things to learn about how this works. But I know one thing, that God's promises have never failed me. And you can put some weight on them. What can you do to cause young people to take an interest in the Bible? One thing is you ought to model enthusiasm for word studies. 
This is the reason that I got Daniel's question wrong, because I was thinking about word studies. When he asked, what does the word study mean? Were any of you here when that happened? And uh, if you're thinking about word study and you hear the word study, what do you think? Anyway, so that, that's what happened inside my head. Uh, word, or was that you? Or was that, that was, no, that was Daniel. That was Daniel. That's right. So a word study, you know what I mean by that. It's where you take your concordance and you look up something and you kind of follow it through the Bible. Word study is the most exciting thing in Bible study. That's where you feel like you're digging for gold, and it's much better than digging for, for real gold, because in real gold, you dig all day long and you find very little. But in this, even in 20 minutes, you're almost guaranteed to find a gem. Uh, what you want to model for young people in your Bible curriculum is that when you do word study, you find help. If the young person knows or sees that you get help, it'll be much easier to believe that they're going to find help. If they see that you did a study and you found something, it's going to be much easier for them to believe that when they do a study, they're going to find something. Let me tell you my own experience with this. I mean, one of my 10,000 own experiences with this. I was 18 years old. I was at Heartland College in Virginia. I was there for all of eight months, and this was during the latter half of those eight months. That is, I left in the middle of my third quarter. But I was still there at the time of this story. And uh, while I was there, someone asked me to give a Bible study Friday night. This is 1991. If you're going to give a Bible study, do you think you might study? Like you wouldn't study, but most people will study more before they give a study than they will for anything else. There's just something about knowing you have to share to make you quite diligent to at least study something. So I did. And uh, I want to show you what I found, part of what I found in that Bible study. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 12. 1 Samuel 12 and verse 23 what I found in that study is a number of stories where Moses prayed for God's rebellious people. I found that like in Numbers 14 and 16 and 20. I told you 1 Samuel 12. 1 Samuel 12 and verse 23. This is the story where the tribes have just chosen a king. And after they, or decided they wanted a king is really what happened here. After that, there was thunder and lightning in a, t- in a season of year when there shouldn't be thunder and lightning. And it made them feel like maybe they had just gone over the edge. Maybe God was about to destroy them. So in verse 21 and 22, they ask Samuel, please pray for us. They want to be spared from divine judgments. Right, now look at verse 23. Samuel says, moreover, as for me... God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in, what's the word? Ceasing to pray for you. What, what an idea. Sin against who? It says the Lord. That is, according to Samuel, praying for you was not a duty to you, but it was a duty to God. And if I don't pray for you, I'm neglecting my duty to God. Do you see that there in verse 23? God forbid that I should sin against the Lord and ceasing to pray for you, but was prayer all that Samuel thought he should do? But I will teach you the good and the right way. According to Samuel, 
he had two responsibilities to help those people. One was to pray, and one was to teach. That's what Moses did. He prayed and he taught. That's what good elementary school teachers do. They pray and they teach. Does it make a difference when you really pray for your students? Look at Job 42. Job 42. What I'm showing you are some of the verses I found when I was uh, doing that word study, my one eight months period of college education. Job 42, that's the story when God has just scared Job's three friends. Do y'all remember what God said to the three friends? He said that you have not spoken of me the thing which is right like my servant Job. He said, go to Job and ask him to pray for you because him I will accept lest I deal with you after your folly. You wouldn't want to hear that. That would, that would be very intimidating. But you can see there that God didn't want to punish them, right? Or else he wouldn't have given them any hint how they could escape judgment. So they went to Job, and Job prays for them in verse 9. Now look at verse 10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. That was twice as much cattle, twice as much camels, twice as much everything except the same number of children. Well, why not twice as many children? Because you don't lose your children when they die. You get to keep them. So Job got twice as many children. The Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. But what was the pivotal event according to verse 10? It was intercessory prayer. So what you're looking at are two verses that I did not know existed before, as a freshman, I did a word study. Then I found them and shared them one Sabbath morning, and they became quite familiar to me that day. Someone asked me to share again, and I shared again a couple days later. And well, you know, I shared a few times, and those verses are permanently with me. I think even if I come down with Alzheimer's, even if I'm at a late stage of it, and you come and I don't recognize you, if you ask me what does 1 Samuel 12, 23 say, it might come out. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? What I'm saying is that to get your young people doing word studies, to give them an experience with it, that's a living thing. And Bible class can be so not living. Oh, there's something more about this I want to say. Bible class has a reputation in many schools of being the easy A. Bible class should not be an easy A. If you make algebra an easy A, they're not going to know their algebra. If you make chemistry an easy A, they're not going to know their chemistry. And if you make Bible an easy A, they're not going to know their Bible. I don't mean that you should make things obscure. I don't mean that you should make things mysterious. I mean that you should require a high level of acquirement. You should require a decent level of mastery. You don't make it difficult by making it hard to comprehend. You make it difficult by making sure there's plenty to understand, plenty to remember, plenty to do. 
my time ran out of itself. But let me just make sure we get through what I want to be sure we get through. One more important thing, two more important things. If you want to have a good Bible class, you're going to have to do some parent education. I mean, if you have a school. In our little school, we have to do parent education because it's not going to work out if our little church school is holding up one set of values and the kids go home and eat junk and watch junk and stay on their phones until midnight. It's not going to work out. We're going to be having... What I'm saying is it might not seem like the Bible and the curriculum, but it is directly related because if you do not find a way to convince the parents to cooperate in curbing the media's uh, exposure to your children, the Bible is not going to be interesting to your children. I don't know how to say it. The Bible is interesting, but it won't be to your children. Uh, Maybe my own experience would be all right to say, God used Les Graham to lead me to stop watching television when I was 11 and 12 years old. I think it was a lifesaver. He didn't convince my mom to stop using it, or my dad or my brother. It was just me. And what I learned at that experience, in that age is if I would be in the living room, which was the same as the dining room in our house, if the television was on, I would watch it, despite the fact that I had chosen not to watch it. So I decided I would no longer come to the living room when the television was on. But that meant I would no longer come to meals when the television was on. And that made my parents a little bit upset with me. It seems a little bit manipulative for a 12-year-old to say he's not going to come to meals unless the television gets shut off. And maybe it sounds a little bit, but you know, it was right. I didn't have a right to control my parents, but I had a right to put a guard on my eyes. And so the television went off during meals. I'm glad my parents were a little bit flexible with their stubborn kid. And... um, But the devil had another trick up his sleeve. When I stopped watching television, I did not stop using my computer. I had a Commodore VIC-20. Does anyone here remember Commodore VIC-20s? Did you have one? Uh, I did. I had a Commodore VIC-20, 5K memory with a 3K expansion cartridge in the back. So 8K total, about the equivalent of one millionth of a mini SD card now. And... uh, I, I had that, and on that, I began to play video games. My parents got me an Atari, uh, the original joystick thing, and I began to master. I actually ended up in what was called the, uh, hall of, it was the Video Game Hall of Fame when I was a teenager. Today, I wouldn't qualify even by... Back then, there weren't so many millions of people playing. You know, I, I didn't have as much competition as someone would have today. But um, God convicted me at age 13 that those games were, they were, they were at odds with what else was going on in my life. They were making it difficult for me to concentrate in my Bible reading they were making it difficult to take interest in the Bible. 
And I thank God for the ideas that he brought to me so that I stopped playing video games at that stage in my life. Well, now I see young people all over who are exposed to the same television and games. And what YouTube is today is exactly what games and television were to me when I was young. It's just the same. When I say that I stopped watching television, I'm not saying that it's wicked to watch a nature documentary. But what I'm saying is I'm glad no one tried to teach me how to be discriminating when I was 11 or 12 because it would not have worked out. You don't have the tools when you're 11 and 12 to be properly discriminating. And even my mom, who thought she really was helping me, I had a remote control. And when people would come downstairs, I would switch to the PBS channel. And my parents really thought I was watching better stuff on TV than I was. And I think there are many parents who think that the smartphones are more innocuous than they really are. And they just don't understand to what extent young people are being bamboozled. What does this have to do with Bible and primary curriculum? It has to do like this. If you don't beat down the enemy, he's going to obliterate what you're trying to do in your Bible curriculum. If you don't find some way to counter him, he's going to counter you. And if you don't have victory over him, he's going to have victory over your children. By, I'm, per, I'm personifying the media frenzy. That's what I'm trying to do right now. I bet I just made enemies out of six people in this room, or seven. But I love you. I'm trying to do the best for you, even if it's going to mean that you're restricted for the rest of your growing up years. But if you restrict yourself, it doesn't feel like a restriction, right? That's what happened to me. I I restricted myself, and then it didn't feel like a restriction. Um, And go to bed early. Let's look at our last verse, Psalm 127. Psalm 127, verse 2. Found thanks to someone assisting me. One of the good professors here. Psalm 127, verse 2. Is a verse not quoted often enough by workaholics. Mm -hmm. It is vain for you to rise up, what does it say? Early. Early. And to sit up late. And to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. It's true. It's vain to stay up late. It's vain to get up early. It's really not helpful. You end up in a land of depression when you truncate your sleep. And I hope that you will find a way in your education of parents so that those children can get to bed so early that they can get up and have devotions without an alarm clock because they need their sleep. You might have to help them learn how to have devotions. And uh, if you send them to that camp, Young Disciple Camp, uh, it's every summer. It's happening this summer, too. Uh, They will learn there how to have devotions. They never learned it anywhere else, which is often just a life-modifying, transforming experience. Thank you for listening. I didn't teach you one thing about uh, how to teach. 
but I taught you a lot about how to make sure your teaching works. And I'm not going to review it. We've used up our time. Maybe I will tomorrow night. Let's bow our heads for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I want to thank you for simple tools like memory work, like prayer, like word studies, like testimonies. Please teach us how to use the resources and tools that are available so that young people can learn to find a love for that which is best. I thank you and I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Can I say one more thing before you stand up? My prayer made me think about it. What, when you eat hot, spicy food, this is an illustration, I'm not preaching to you about hot, spicy food. When you eat hot, spicy food, uh, hot, spicy food affects your tongue in such a way that you become desensitized to hot, spicy food so that you need more hot, spicy food to get the same spicy kick that you needed before. But at the same time that you're getting accustomed to more and more spicy kicks, what happens is you become incapable of tasting the subtle sweets and sours, the flavors that you could have enjoyed before you learn to enjoy that kind of taste. I'm trying to illustrate by hot, spicy food what happens when we have stimulating environments for our children. It is the stimulation of needing excitement and fun that deadens the ability to enjoy tranquil pleasures. And there are young people today who cannot enjoy a peach and laying on a blanket under a tree the way other young people can because an artificial life of stimulation has robbed them of the ability, they find that exceedingly boring, and they need a constant stimulation just to not feel like life isn't even worth living. Don't let young people have that kind of stimulation that ruins their ability to enjoy life. That's the thought. All right, you are dismissed. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.